Our scripture reading this morning is from the Psalms. It's the 110th Psalm, uh, which is a Psalm of David and a Psalm of Jesus. So, Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The Lord bless the reading of his word. This psalm is quoted in the book of Hebrews in the passage that we're looking at today which is in chapter 5. Let me just turn there, Hebrews chapter 5, where uh, we read this, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is applying this psalm written by David and kind of about David. He's applying that psalm to the Lord Jesus himself. And he says, you are a priest forever in the, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, as we mentioned last time, this idea of the priest in the order of Melchizedek is going to get developed in the next few chapters, and so I have to resist the temptation to get into it too soon. <laughs> in fact, at the, uh, at the end of this passage, we read this. He says, the, the writer says, about this we have much to say. So we're going to have much to say about it as we go forward, and today we're not going to pay too much attention to who Melchizedek was or what Melchizedek's priesthood is all about, but we will as we go along in the book of Hebrews. But today we want to look at this idea of a high priest. I wanted to begin with a question and that it, it's a question I want you to take seriously, which is, who do you look down on? That's kind of a mean question, isn't it? Because my initial reaction if somebody asks me that question is, well, I don't look down on anyone. And why do I say that? Well, because I know it's not right to look down on others. But if I really think about the question, I do, in fact, look down on some people. Uh, I don't know. Let's say a criminal. I tend to look down on criminals. I sometimes look down on people because they don't provide me with the service I thought I deserved when I came into their place of business. I 
have a certain disdain. It just comes up in me. I don't have to decide to do it. It just happens. There's people we look down on. Most of us look down on people we don't agree with politically. We don't just disagree with people. We think less of people who have differing political views. So even though if you just asked me the question and I gave you my off-the-cuff answer, if you just asked me, who do you look down on? And I, w I would say, I don't look down on anyone. But that wouldn't really be an honest answer to the question. What do you look down on? Now, if I think about God, or the Son of God, and I ask the question of Jesus, who do you look down on? One answer to that question is everyone. <laughs> I mean, it's true. He is the Lord of all, the King of kings, the King of kings. Everyone is beneath him. But what we see in the text of the book of Hebrews, and really clearly in this text, is Jesus, the King of Kings, the eternal Son of God, places himself beneath everyone. Not just most people, everyone. Everyone. You know, Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 20, I'm just going to turn there for a second. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and there was a sort of a contest going on with the disciples. And James and John, <laughs> James and John, well, in Matthew's story, it's the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and, he's, and says, hey, could my sons sit on your right and your left when you come into the kingdom? And, you know, Jesus gives this answer like, you don't know what you're asking. Well, the other disciples get a little miffed at James and John for getting their mom to politic Jesus in this way for positions in the kingdom and there it says here when the ten heard it they were indignant at the two brothers and Jesus called them to him and said this you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them it shall not be so among you and this is kind of what he was talking about when he said to Mrs. Zebedee, you don't know what you're asking. He goes on, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you 
must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Slave. Now, here's the thing. We just don't think that being someone's slave is being first. If we have a group of people and one of us is the slave of the others, we certainly do not think that he's first among those people. But Jesus is announcing something upside down from the way we think. This is sort of related to when he says, if you love your life, you'll lose it. If you let go of it, you'll find it. Here he says, if you want to be first, you put yourself last. And then he says this, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus talks about whoever would be first should be last, uh, he lived according to that principle because it's true and he is the truth. And so by putting himself last, he is first. And so when I say he put himself below every person, I mean every person. Well, our text, let's just read it. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. Here's what it says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, in the days of his flesh, I think this is a way of saying, in his incarnate being. When, when he is a man, by the way, the days of his flesh are still happening because that was a permanent thing. He took on flesh and he still has it. He died in the flesh and was raised in the flesh and is now seated in the flesh, a human being, the man Jesus, at the right hand of God. And this says that in the days of incarnation, Jesus, Jesus, that is the name of the man who is also the Son of God. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard. Now that word heard is the word for attended to, listened to, heeded. The one who was able to save him from death answered his prayer in the affirmative. When Jesus 
prayed to the one who was able to save him from death. The one who was able to save him from death saved him from death. Now I can hear you saying, but he died. In fact, I think this is a reference to the prayer in the garden with loud cries and tears in great anguish. Jesus prayed to be spared. And then he prayed, but not my will, but yours. He's kind of praying against himself. In what way was he saved from death? In resurrection. He wasn't saved from death in the sense that he was kept from ever dying. He was saved out of death, back into life. The man, Jesus, the body that died, rose again. And so Jesus was saved from death in just that way. There is a reason why the Lord listened to his prayer. Did you hear it? Because of his reverence. His reverence. Now, that's an interesting word. It, it means to uh, prize something of great value, to put something in the position of greatest value. And, of course, the thing he's putting in the position of greatest value is God. The Father. It's about Jesus' heart of worship. Jesus prays the way he prays and is heard because Jesus properly values God. In fact, he utterly values God and God's glory. In fact, the Son of God, the Eternal Son, and the Eternal Father, and the Eternal Spirit entered into something we could call a covenant of redemption in eternity past. He, he uh, redeemed us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so, when Jesus comes, he's on a mission. And he prays, if there's another way, let it be, but there isn't. So, for the joy set before him, he said, the book of Hebrews says later in chapter 12, he endured the cross. He says in the book of John, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down willingly. He has a goal. And he is heard in his prayer, not my will but thine, in the resurrection. The one who can save him from death does save him from death. Now, this is, of course, the greatest story ever told. The life, the, the holy, righteous life, the atoning death the resurrection, the ascension, the, the uh, coronation, the, his, his sitting down at the right hand, and our anticipation of his coming again to complete our salvation. Uh, this is all the whole, this is all everything is all about. 
the eternal Son of God redeeming lost humanity. Well, we read this in the next verse. Although he was a son, really we should probably just say, although he was son, or the way I've put it in the bulletin, and son though he was, he learned obedience. That's a mind bender. We talked about this last Sunday. How does the eternal, perfect Son of God learn? Well, in his humanity. Son though he was, he was man and completely human, just like you and me. And so he learned obedience. But this doesn't just say he learned obedience. It says how? Through what he suffered. He learned obedience. We could translate it like this. He learned obedience from the things he suffered. Jesus attended the school of hard knocks. In a way, no other man ever has. In fact, he's really so far the only graduate from the school of hard knocks. Well, what was the thing? What was the mandate? Well, this says he learned obedience. Obedience to what? What was, what was the thing he obeyed? What was his mandate? Well, I'm reminded of John chapter 3. Famous passage. Most of us have memorized at least one verse out of John chapter 3. And uh, in his conversation with Nicodemus, I want to read this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this is something about the mission on which Jesus was sent from the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what's the mission? To give himself, and here we have the picture of the serpent that Moses lifted up, and Jesus, this is a clear figure of the crucifixion. Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness so that people who look to him will receive life. Well, in 2 Corinthians, we have another little hint about what the mission is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, another famous text. Probably many of you have memorized at least one verse out of this text. Here's what it says. Uh, Got to decide where to start reading. Uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. 
Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, The core idea in that text is the idea of reconciliation, of of reunion, of a broken relationship healed. So we were alienated from God, separated from God, unknowing of God. We We didn't have any meaningful fellowship with God. But in Christ and by his sacrifice, we are reconciled to God. This is salvation, because God is life, and apart from God, we are dead. And so we experience resurrection in association with Christ, and so we participate in his resurrection. We are reconciled to God. We now, as those who trust in Christ, have active, open, fellowship with the living God in Christ by the Spirit. That is the mandate that Jesus was obeying when he prayed, not my will, but yours. And that led him, of course, to the cross. And remember, we're answering the question, what is the commandment that Jesus is obeying? What is the, when, when the writer of Hebrews says he learned obedience. What is, what is he obeying? Well, here it is. John 10, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge, this mandate, this commandment, I have received from my Father. So if we ask the question, what is, what is the obedience Jesus is learning through the things he's suffering? This is it. This is it. To lay down his life for our sake and to take it up again. For our sake. Uh, So John 10, verses 17 and 18. Of course, right here in the book of Hebrews, we have a description of this in chapter 2, in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make satisfaction for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So what is Jesus, what is the obedience Jesus is learning through the things he suffered? It is just this. To be one of us, to make satisfaction before God for our sins. And so to deliver us into life, to reconcile us to God, and in that way to bring us resurrection from the dead. Here's another way of saying this. The mandate is this, the extension, the extension of the loving fellowship of the triune God to lost and broken humanity. What Jesus is doing, what Jesus is learning to obey in his life as a man is the mandate to bring God into our lives and to bring us into theirs. To extend the fellowship of the eternal persons of the triune God. To extend that fellowship to us, which was what he made us for in the first place. To be the ones who, out of fellowship with him, exhibited that fellowship toward each other and to the world around us. And so this is what Jesus does. This is what requires his suffering. Suffering, he was one of us. Well, that's the next question I have here on my list of questions. What's the nature of the suffering of the Son of God? Well, we think, well, the cross, that's pretty intense suffering for sure. What's the nature of the suffering of the Son of God in his obedience to that covenant of redemption that was made among the persons of God before they made anything else. Well, it's fellowship. It's his association with us and his complete identification with sinful humanity to be made like his brothers in every respect. To be completely identified with sinful humanity, yet not a sinner. To exhibit what Adam failed in, to be the man of righteousness, and to extend the fellowship of God. Well, this was suffering. We could read about this in Philippians chapter 2, of course, where Jesus steps down humbles himself, lets go of the free exercise of his divine privileges and powers, and becomes a man. Imagine this, the suffering involved in the eternal Son of God laying in a manger, a manger, crying, to be fed. Well, that's just an ordinary human life. 
and for this eternal one to participate in ordinary human life was to learn obedience through the things he suffered. Of course, he had to deal with people who were dumber than him. I remember his conversation when he was 12 years old and he's in the temple having a conversation with these theologians and they're all going, where did this kid come from? I think, man, it must have been hard for him to put up with those clowns. Oh, and then I think, oh, but I'm a theologian. (laughs) Man, it must be hard for him to put up with this clown. But, you know, he, he was there and his parents came. Where were you? We've been looking all over for you. He said, well, didn't you know I need to be about my father's business? And then it says he went home with them and submitted himself to them. Think of it. Ordinary, ordinary kid, son of God. That's quite a combination. His association with us and with his complete identification with us, which extends to his endurance of the full consequence of our sin. He doesn't have any sin. But he takes on himself the consequence of ours, which is death. And when he was created a man, when he became a human being, he took on dying, which is the consequence of our sin. So his association with us and his identification with us is complete. And you just got to think for a second, what does it mean for the Son of God made man to die? You know, I think that agony we read about in the prayer in Gethsemane before the, the night before he was crucified, I don't think that agony was really much about the pain of being crucified as it was the anticipation of death from the one who is life. The anticipation of some sort of experience of alienation from God. Now, I think Jesus experiences that as a man, the eternal son, that can't die, but the man can. And so he knows he is going to endure the experience of death, of separation from God. That utter alienation. And we know that this is a satisfaction of justice on our behalf, so it's in one way or another the judicial equivalent of hell for all those who believe. So his learning obedience through the things he suffered 
is about his complete identification with us. Now, all of that also is only possible because of his perfect reverence. Because he totally prizes the glory of God. Because this prizing of God uh, leads him to complete faith in the provision of God. So just think about this. He's going to voluntarily die. That is to enter into a state of utter helplessness. The only way to do that is to completely trust the plan of God. Now, he's the eternal son of God, so he does completely trust the plan of God. But he really completely trusts it. And we see him working to learn to trust it when he's praying in the garden. And he learns obedience through that suffering. And then we read, and being made perfect. <laughs> being made perfect. Now, oh my goodness, the word for perfect here is telos. It's the same as the word tetelestai, which is the word Jesus said when he was taking his last breath on the cross. Done! Finished. Finished. And as we've talked about before, that is not a cry of surrender. It is a cry of victory. Done! As in goal. He has achieved ultimate obedience in that moment. So, being perfected, the word used here, he became the source. Now, the word source here is also an interesting word. It means the basis, the foundation, or in a legal sense, the standing. So, you know, if you are going to court, you have to have standing, right? So if you're going to sue somebody, you have to be a person uh, damaged. You have to have standing. How do we have standing, the standing of salvation? Christ is the standing. Being perfected, Jesus being perfected. Jesus, it is finished, Jesus, is our standing for salvation, of eternal salvation. It's the basis. For who? For everyone who is obeying him. Now that's a literal translation of the Greek expression. For everyone who is obeying. Now, I got to be really clear here because this is not a condition. It's a description. If we look around and we see people obeying him, and we ask, what's the basis of their salvation? The answer is Jesus. That's what this sentence says. They're obeying him, so they're saved people. Saved people are the ones obeying him. What's their standing for their eternal salvation? His death. It's not a condition. It, this does not say... If you obey him, you possess eternal salvation. 
That is not the meaning of this sentence. It it does say something like, those who possess eternal salvation on the basis of the cross are the same people that that you could observe obeying him. Do you see why that's important, why that's a meaningful distinction? Because we do not earn our standing in salvation. It is a gift by his grace. He became the source of it. It was finished. We rest in it. Well, and then we need to think also about what does it, what does it mean to obey? Well, we could look at chapter 4, which we looked at before. Chapter 4 was that whole exhortation of don't be like those people who came right up to the boundary of the promised land and then said, nah, we can't do it. What was their problem? Well, they didn't obey. What was their problem? They didn't believe. That was their problem. And what we have in the book of Hebrews is something like a coin that has a heads and a tails. And heads is believe and tails is obey. It's the same coin. There's, there's no, you can't pull these things apart. You can, you're talking about the same thing just looking at it from the other side. When we trust something, we act according to that trust. That's obedience. When we trust in Christ, we become obedient. In fact, trusting Christ is the call for obedience. This we could read in John chapter 6, the verse I thought I was looking for before. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, some people come up to him and says, what do we need to do to be doing the works of God? Do you remember how Jesus answered that question? What do we need to do to do the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God, to believe in the one he sent. (laughs) Uh, We want to say, well, there's faith and then there's obedience, as though these are like two completely separate things. And I come to Christ and I believe in him and I get saved and then I got to work my head off to obey. No, if you believe, you do obey. In fact, if you believe, you've already obeyed. And all obedience is from there is living out faith. It means obedience, here describing those who are standing in their eternal salvation, it means the same thing it just meant for him. When we talked about he learned obedience. Well, how did he do that? By utterly trusting God. And when there was a new challenge, he trusted more or deeper or harder or something. His obedience is utterly grounded at all times in his fellowship with the Father. He says this, I only do what I see the Father doing. I'm only acting out of what I know of him. I am obedient because I am walking with him. Same for us. It means prizing fellowship with God in Christ. 
trusting completely in God's provision and acting accordingly. We want to make it more complicated than it really is. I trust him, therefore I whatever. This means extending. Remember, just like it did for Christ, it means extending or exhibiting the love of God into the world. Now, I could try to just do that. That's never really worked out that great for me. When I just try to be loving like Jesus, so I look at Jesus' example and I go, okay, now I'm going to try. Uh, uh, it's really going to be not identifi identifiably like Jesus most of the time. But here is what I do. I walk in fellowship with God in trusting God's provision. And out of that, I love other people. By being loved, I become loving. And then I kind of can't help it. And then all the other commandments are just sort of details about how to go about it, which I find helpful. And they look like opportunities to me instead of like demands. Here's the way it worked in Jesus. The anticipation of the joy won over the suffering. The joy of extending the love of God to someone beats whatever suffering might be involved in it. That only comes from this walk of trust in Christ. The way Paul puts this in the book of Galatians, Galatians 6.19, he says, you know, none of the... Whether, in Christ, circumcised, uncircumcised, law, this law or that law, blah, 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 la, 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 la. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is faith. Working through love. Oh, what a key expression that is. Faith working through love. So if I want to work on something, what I really want to work on is faith. Because faith generates love. And so that's what we find in this great, low high priest. This high priest who puts himself beneath us and lifts us up to heaven. Our great low high priest in Jesus. And this passage concludes with this, being designated. He's be, being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest. Now, honestly, this word designated is a little off, I think. It's a word for greeting. And here's what I think this is a reference to. Christ 
comes before the Father, our High Priest, representing us before God with the sacrifice of his own life as the sacrifice by which he leads us into the very presence of God. And he presents himself as our High Priest and God recognizes him as our High Melchizedekian priest. He's greeted, addressed by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Just to wrap this up, what we want to notice is Jesus, the eternal one made flesh, was perfected through suffering. He suffered completely. And in doing so, he became completely one of us. And his suffering was complete. Doesn't leave anything out. And so he is our high priest, our low high priest. He puts himself below us to bring us back to God. And we have a similar opportunity in living our lives by faith now, following after him. It's not a just a, what did he do, how do I do that? It's a, how do I extend the love of God, which I know in Christ by the Spirit, how do I extend that love to the people around me? Probably going to be some suffering involved. But the joy beats the suffering. And so for the joy set before us, we will endure whatever we're called to endure in exhibiting the love that he has exhibited to us. We're going to continue this adventure. And uh, yeah, uh, so we're going to see more and more as we go through the next few chapters. Who's this Melchizedek guy? And what's that all about? And we're going to address this question. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull. <laughs> so the dull of hearing. So the writer of the book of Hebrews says, I got a lot to explain to you, but it's going to be hard because you're kind of dim. Okay, well, we're going to try to work our way with them, and we're going to figure this out as we go. It's going to be a great blessing, because it's a great adventure in learning the greatness of Christ. And in this text, the, the author of Hebrews is just reminding all of us, look, when trouble comes, the last thing you should ever think of is turning away from Christ in order to turn away from trouble. The joy beats the suffering. Father, we give you thanks. Lord, help us as we uh, work to understand these things, to understand the scriptures and this great salvation that you have provided to us in Christ. We thank you for these things, Lord. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.